This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. People heard about me, and one of them was Mike Evans, okay. who was lying on all in the family. Yeah. And he came to me one day and he said, uh, look, I'm on this show called All in the Family. And my part is just the walk on and the walk off part. He said, and I understand you're a good writer and everybody's writing for the show. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to write a, a show that centers on my character. Mm -hmm. And I'll put both our names on the Take It In and Norman Lee and we'll split the money. So I said, okay. So I wrote this show in which I created his mother and father, George and Louise Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And he took it in Norman Lear, and two weeks later, Norman sent for me. And that's how it all started. But that really was the impetus that created? The Jeffersons, the yeah. Jeffersons. Yeah. And so did you work on the Jeffersons? No. Why? Well, I pitched the show in 1971. Uh -huh. And his first thing Norman Lear said when I came into the office was, America will never buy a black man calling white people hunky in a sitcom. Huh. So then I pitched uh, Good Times, which what became Good Times. That was in 71, and Good Times didn't come on the air until 1974. Yeah. And in the, those three years, me and Norman must have had at least 20 meetings. And the one note I got in every meeting without fail was, you have to get rid of the father. A strong black man don't work in a sitcom. Hmm. So when it went on, it went on when he did Maud, and he introduced Esterol as Floyd. Mm -hmm. So this network decided to give her her own show. And he took the show that I had created to the networks, and they mm -hmm. said, okay. So she insisted on have, she didn't want a matriarchal family. Mm -hmm. That's why the father was on Good Times in the first place. Mm -hmm. So then I went to work as a staff writer for Good Times. And it was, I caught hell because Norman Lear was an incredible racist, but he didn't think so. Uh, and everything they wrote was stereotypic. They, they thought of black humans. Y'all's a boss. I was going to go down by the river. Yeah. And we, I'd fight them tooth and nail. They'd ignore me in the offices, take that Yaza stuff down to the cast. Uh, Don Amos, Esther Rolle, and John Dubois would have a fit. I would give them what I had written. They said they'd go, okay. Norman Lear would reluctantly shoot it put it on the air, and it became a big hit. After the first season, even though I had done 80% of the rewrites and had two shows of my own that I had written all by myself that go on the air, and the white writers, all four of them, three of them, had only done 20% of the writing, and they'd only gotten one show on the air. After the first season, I was demoted, and they were promoted. I think that worked. Good Glad everything. Great Eric Monty, huh? Good everything. Um, good why, every good everything. Isn't it a beautiful day to be alive? Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And let me say how eternally grateful I am. You know, I I knew about Eric Monte and Mike Evans, mm -hmm. who was the original Lionel. Now it makes me wonder: is that why he was replaced? 
Ah, uh, let's dance. Oh, we're gonna dance with Norman Lee let's just dance, for a little while this morning. Okay, yeah, because somebody <laughs> and it's ironic. You you, um, you sent me a text last night about this, and uh, I didn't mm -hmm. mention one word of Norman Lee this week. Never had room for it on the show. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It was inherent, you know. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm purposefully not going to to ev evoke the name of this man. Of course. But watching more of Eric Monte, who you just saw, the creator of Good Times, the person that really gave us the George Jefferson that we know. Oh, George, we we uh, we know him. And I That's was right. shout, I, out, shout out to the great Sherman Helmsley, no question. Yes, and this is um, Bill Sanford, who we're going to talk about along with all those black women. Come on now, yes, right. You already talked now. about Mother Jefferson um, a few years ago when we were having this conversation about right. Brother John. Was it Brother John? It was one of these, yeah. Um, Mother Jefferson was in Brother John, I think. And um, that's right. Right. So, so it's like all of these breadcrumbs are being put together, and there's a full meal now because you know I have these disparate, you know, ways of knowing these different people, and now it's all coming together. And as Norman Lear made transition at 101, I said this mm -hmm. yesterday, we were talking about, because uh, Roy Wood Jr. was on the show, and we were talking about- um, Shout know, out Roy Wood. Is, is, did Roy say he's going to go to uh, Spam versus Howard next weekend in Atlanta? Oh. I can't imagine that Roy is going to miss that football game at Celebration oh, Bowl. But no. anyway- <laughs> He chin checked me over somebody. I was- I was yeah, because I was uh, talking greasy about somebody because it's Friday, which is when when I give myself permission to talk about people. No question. But uh, somebody that went to FAMU and did all of these great things for FAMU. Um, now I can't even remember. Damn it. Sorry, Roy. But y'all got to listen to the show from yesterday. But anyway, we were yes. talking about, you know, all of this, all of these things in, in TV. And I had a, a clip teed up from Florida, Florida Evans from Esther Roll uh, about her demand of a father. But I didn't even put it together that Norman Lear was dead. Do you know? And then this morning, sorry, right. um, Esther Rowe helped you. She did. She, she did. They having another conversation right about now. If Norman Lear is over where Esther Rowe is, but Esther Rowe got this. Oh, no that's right. Esther. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Esther Rowe got we're, this. <laughs> we're, we're talking about you know two ways that people live long: um, evil or you know purpose. You know, so like you know, Mother Randall and, and good health care doesn't hurt. No, good health care is great. Let me just say that. But evil, yeah. evil has a a way of you know making no sense in people's uh, longevity. I don't know. How mm. that a mm. particular uh, orange-looking person will probably live a very long time. But I said he's either going to be in jail or hell. And he was like, I don't think he's going to be in hell. I was like, you know, hell has many different forms. Doesn't mean he's going to die. But you know, we'll see. Anyway, Elijah Muhammad said, Elijah Muhammad said, hell is on earth. Why y'all waiting on hell when you die? Ain't you in hell right now? Malcolm said, you catching hell right now. What y'all waiting on? You want to go over there to another version of hell? He better watch out. And of course, the minister himself, Louis Farrakhan, his famous uh, recording when he converted his Calypso career into singing for the nation of Islam, white man's heaven is a black man's hell. And I would just edit that to say a white person's heaven is a black person's hell. So yeah, you ain't got to wait. You ain't gotta okay. wait, but it was it was it was lovely for Norman Lear, right? For right, years. right. We talked about Kissinger last last week being a hundred. You know, we like did. There's something to that. I don't know what it is, but um. Mm. So Eric Monte, mm. I was thinking about uh this whole week. You know, I was saying that people build systems when they don't have 
imagination and talent, right? You build a system that you can take advantage of other people's talent or other people's labor, or other people's energy or ingenuity. You build these systems to extract, you know, you build these systems to extract. Mm -hmm. And I think about an Eric Monte, uh, Cooley High, which I was watching something called Black Cake, Black Cake on Hulu and Glenn Terman. Oh my God, that man, like he's frozen in time. Glenn Terman is still, Cooley High, you know, um, this man is so one for the brothers who ain't here, pouring that libation. No question. Ways of knowing. No question. (laughs) But this man's name, Eric Monte, should be Mm. right alongside Norman Lear. When when did you first meet well, Eric Monte, Dr. Carr? I, I wouldn't I don't know that I would put him beside Norman Lear, because Norman Lear is again using our Africana framework, he represents the social structure. Ain't, ain't nobody mad at him. He did what he was supposed to do with his life. But I think this this conversation we're having this morning, you know, who, you know, what does it mean to belong? You know, who are African people to other people, who are African people to each other? I think we all met Eric Monte before we knew him. We know the songs, we know the plots, we know the characters. You know, Jimmy Walker being interviewed after uh, Norman Lear made transition said, no, actually that's not true. And we're gonna talk about this too, the September 1975 issue of Ebony Magazine. And all of those are available on Google Books. Y'all can read the article on bad times on the good times set where they fighting and they're all fighting Norman Lear and them. And one of the things, except Jimmy Walker, Jimmy Walker said 20 years from now, this is when he was interviewed, and we'll talk about this article. But Jimmy Walker said, you know, 20 years from now, nobody's going to remember what I'm doing right now. I'm just living for right now. I'm just trying to be funny. But not only do people remember, sometimes that's the only thing they remember. So we all met Eric Monte through his work. They couldn't steal it from The man sued ABC, CBS, Norman Lear, and had to settle for a million dollars because his lawyers told him if he didn't settle, they were going to quit. And he couldn't find other lawyers to represent him. The man ended up being unhoused. He got strung out, bounced back. And shout out to Real Black, uh, who posts a lot of these interviews, the one including the one we just saw on YouTube, YouTube that channel. A lot of good work there on, on that channel. But, you know, we knew him without knowing his name. And, and, and you know, for those of us like you and me and, and a lot of people who are in the room right now across the, the span, and again, this platform being invaluable for us to have these conversations, who else going to talk about it in this depth? You know, we knew about Eric Monte because, you know, it's like the sister who wrote and then the Wachowski brothers decided they was going to make the Matrix. I mean, it, Black folk, this is why we have to have this framework. In the governance conversation, these are conversations that we have, but when we don't really pause, as we've talked about the power to pause over the last three and a half years, and just center ourselves, we realize with just a little bit of searching, we can verify or dismiss, we can separate urban legend from fact. There's the brother talking himself. So in some ways, we're really meeting. A lot of people today are going to meet, and over the arc of the time that this lives in perpetuity, this conversation that we have, a lot of people are going to meet this brother for the first time, voice for voice, and that's and that's okay, because they're all, they're both ancestors now, as are many of the people in the cast of Good Times and the Jeffersons, and not only those two, but all those other shows, Maud, for example, or Different Strokes, or The Facts of Life, for example, you know, or you know, so 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 we get to have this conversation because that's our work. We have to recover the momentum of memory. So, you know, we shout out to ancestor today because somebody else passed. And they gave us an opportunity to sit in our governance formation and have a different kind of conversation. That's who we belong to. We belong to each other. 
And, and for me, Eric Monte represents the possibilities, right? That that and and to you to your point, the reminder that when we have these good things that we do, you know, when we have these amazing, brilliant ideas uh, that other people glom onto and then bastardize and then control and then take credit for, you know, it is our responsibility, those of us who know, to to set the record straight because this is going to be the only history, right? The only history is going to be these things were done by this person, right? Well, this the only is, history is the social structure. Right. That's, that's right. what so we I'm can break our own record. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to though. This is the this is why we are in class with Carr every Saturday. This is why we That's why we have narrative. Narrative, right? That's we right. have to. We have to, because if we don't, a hundred years from now, Eric Monte's name may not, but it will be because we will not stop talking about him. So no, I appreciate no, I appreciate the the walk into um history through you know the <laughs> passing of somebody to erect yeah. The name and the memory of somebody else uh, and many other people. So thank you no for this. Dr. Oh no, thank no, thank you. I mean, this is something we have, and this is something we can do, and it's something it's our responsibility to. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, to hear and to see the fight? You know, Jay Carruthers called this intellectual warfare. It never ends because the system, the social structure that we live in, relies on suppressing voices. The voices have to be suppressed. You know, the governments of the world, which all have their problems internally, you know, your people fight even against their own governments. I don't know there's a government on the planet where people don't suffer under the rulers or under the leaders, so to speak, and in some better than others. But if 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 14 countries on the U.N. Security Council can say this fighting needs to stop and then one country raises its hand as it did yesterday and say, no, we don't think it should stop being the United States of America. And not just being the United States of America, but uh, again, one of the things we're learning right now in terms of we use this African states framework in the social structure, who are African people to other people, then, you know, one of the things we can always learn is that we have to hold out the social structure from our governance formation. Because if we don't, we can co-mingle the two and that just creates confusion. And it also creates a kind of cognitive dissonance. We see the thing in front of us it doesn't make sense, but we continue to try to jam those things together. So yesterday at the United Nations, for example, 14 countries, the UN Security Council says, you know, we say that there should be an immediate ceasefire. One country, one of the permanent members of the UN Security Council, one of the five permanent members, raises its hand and says, no, 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 it shouldn't. In fact, we do not support, the direct quote was, we do not support a cause for, a mid, uh, for an immediate ceasefire. This would only plant the seeds for the next war. Now, that's utterly absurd. In fact, what you're doing is ensuring that it will be perpetual war as you're wiping out whole families. Palestinian Olympic uh, Commission uh, announced yesterday that dozens of athletes, potential Olympians, won't be competing in anyone's Olympics because they're their ancestors having been killed. Were they all Hamas too? But the hand that went up was a black hand. Not Ambassador uh, Linda Thompson, no. It was uh, one of her deputies, Robert A. Wood. Bachelor's of Arts from CUNY. He was uh, trained in journalism, Professor Hunter. In fact, a career diplomat, 30 plus years, retired, and then was nominated and appointed, uh, nominated by Joe Biden. Uh, actually, was elevated to being an ambassador by Barack Obama in 2014, and nominated in 2014, uh, 2013, and, and confirmed in 2014, nominated by Joe Biden in 2021, and confirmed in 22. Uh, and he's the one, the black man, put his hand up and said that foolishness. 
even as millions are in the streets around the world saying, stop this. This doesn't set aside the human tragedies and the ongoing conflicts and the and the violences in Africa and the Caribbean and all over the world, Latin America. But it does say that this moment where the whole world seems to have been arrested by uh, an image and images of a slaughter, a slaughter taking place, a perpetual slaughter taking place. If you read the uh, the numbers that have been uh, announced most recently, not by the U.S. propaganda, these newspapers are, are damn near worthless, but uh, the official account now from the uh, Israeli government of the folks who lost their lives in the murder that was uh, foisted by Hamas uh, on October the 7th is uh, about 1147. That's been down. That number's been numbered, has been reduced from around 1400. And now reports are coming out that in uh, repelling that attack, the Israeli military killed some of those folk. But that's not I'm not equivalent over individuals. That's not what we're talking about because the numbers in Gaza, West Bank, the numbers there have been impeded because the uh, the Gaza health system has collapsed. So the last numbers now are about uh, seventeen thousand five hundred, uh, according to the Israelis, about eighty seven hundred Israelis have been injured in this ongoing fight. Uh, according to uh, world sources, including Palestinian sources, around 46,500 or so have been uh, wounded in in this attack on Gaza, on the Palestinian people, uh, even though the Western press continues to. And, and, and I really do. You have to admire the social structure media. This is yesterday's Financial Times when it says um, I love. I, I don't love. I, I, let me let me let me edit that because that's when I say love in this context, I'm being completely ironic. I hate it. I detest it, but I embrace it because this is how propaganda works. Uh, yesterday's Financial Times says for 75 years, Jews and Palestinians. This is the front page. Yeah. For 75 years, Jews and Palestinians with Israeli citizenship have endured a fragile coexistence. See the passive language: endured a fragile coexistence. But rarely has there been such a stern test as the eight-week Israel-Hamas war. Israel isn't killing Hamas only. Israel is killing whoever the hell gets hit by a bomb or a bullet. You understand? Everybody go south. Okay, now we're going to bomb the south. What the hell? We're looking for Hamas. And we understand what you say you're doing, but you're killing everybody else. Well, well, you know, when are you going to stop? We're going to stop when we get rid of Hamas. You're creating the next generation of Hamas. Don't listen to this stooge, Robert A. Wood. I'm sorry, I shouldn't call the brother a stooge. He's worked very hard to get where he is, and I'm, and I'm sure it's his hand. Although looking at him and listening to him yesterday, it seemed like uh, it seemed like he liked it. But anyway, you know, I don't know. But it's not an Israel-Hamas war. It's an IDF assault on the West Bank and Gaza. Now, people say not West Bank. Well, I'll get into that in a second. Both Jews and Palestinians, this is what uh, FT said yesterday, both Jews and Palestinians are mourning unprecedented numbers of dead. Okay, you see the language, the normalizing of this both side kind of thing, like the, like, like the sporting event, like we talked about a month ago, because we're now in month two of this, of this war. But the idea of kind of a both side thing, both Jews and Palestinians are mourning unprecedented numbers of dead. Okay, just before that, I said an eight-week Israel-Hamas war. Okay, both Jews and Palestinians, well, should that be both Jews and Hamas? No, it's Jews and Palestinians. Now you got to expand it. But the the implicit 
idea is that the Palestinians are suffering because of what Hamas did and it is completely justified. And that would make sense, except all the damn countries in the world, over a hundred of them in the General Assembly of the UN, uh, that was announced yesterday, but 14 of the 15 on the UN Security Council said, this got to stop. The one hand went up, a black hand, the limits of diversity, equity, and inclusion for those who are championing DEI. Understand the limits of DEI in a minute. We're going to talk about the fact that they, after this sister who did everything right, her whole life, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, and one of the things they're, they're attacking her now, uh, thanks to this subliterate uh, clown in the United States legislature, at least the fans, it uh, looks like they may sack the president of the University of Pennsylvania first. The board trustees met yesterday. They want her to resign and they're going to fire her. Uh, one of the donors is currently threatening to uh, withdraw a $100 million donation. Money talks. Everything else takes the highway. But I mean, yeah, now the attacks include, well, how did she get to be Harvard's 30th president? Was it diversity, equity, inclusion? No. By your rules, she's better than all of you. Now, I don't have a dog in that fight because I could give less of a damn about the concept, but uh, of the university as the kind of savior of humanity and certainly not the Ivy League. So it's, this isn't about that. But what it is about is the idea that somehow black people do not belong. We do not belong. So we ask the question, who do we belong to? You know, this 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 kind of parses it. So anyway, the idea then that she and the other presidents of the Ivy League did not speak Sufficiently, when Stefanczyk led them into a very leading question trap, where could, the, the cause for the genocide of Israel uh, is that protected speech, and they were like, oh, "It's complicated." No, it's not complicated at all. Anybody calling for somebody to be killed is wrong. The question is, is it protected speech? But you can't have nuance in a stupid society with a stupid representative who's got an ideological agenda and a battery in her back that was placed there by a number of uh, people who are who trying to lead these folks into a trap. And so this sister may, you know, lose her job. She may lose her job. But the point I'm trying to make generally as I finish this paragraph from Financial Times is that the narratives have hardened. So today when we're asking who, you know, do we belong to and how does one belong, we got to understand that narratives shape often who we see ourselves as it as and who we see each other as. So we'll spend a few moments this morning talking about narratives again because there has been a passing, a passing of a man who lived to be over 100 years old, who sits at the center of American identity, that same identity that is perpetual myth-making, and that perpetual myth-making isn't confined to the United States of America. It's a world phenomenon. It's why in our Africana Studies framework, we have something called movement and memory. We have something called uh, cultural meaning-making because these things are how we know each other, how we decide who belongs and who doesn't belong. So to finish up on this kind of both sidedism that FT is uh, writing about and, and putting in its, in its articles, but also that captures how the kind of social structure Western press has hit upon this rhythm to try to maintain this, this narrative that has completely disintegrated around the world as the people of the world stand in our common humanity against this purging, this massacre, this indiscriminate murder. It goes on to say, as both Jews and Palestinians are mourning unprecedented numbers of dead, and each is enraged by assaults on their people. Now, there's nothing that is untrue in that sentence. But again, the underlying idea is somehow this is like equal killing. It's not equal killing. It's not a sporting event. And 
you know it. Guess what? The world knows it. We go on and it says, finally, even those who consider themselves peace activists have struggled with their emotions in the wake of Hamas's October 7th attack. The Financial Times has spoken to citizens on both sides of the conflict. See, either language matters or it doesn't. Citizens on both sides of the conflict. Are there Palestinian citizens? I guess technically, yes. Even as we look in, for example, East Jerusalem, where uh, Israel-born Jerusalem-living Palestinian citizens of Israel are under the constant fear of being arrested, under the constant fear of being assaulted and attacked. Uh, There's news now out of uh, East Jerusalem that folks have been arrested now they were about to, in, in the first four days of the the ceasefire, Israel released about 200 Palestinian prisoners and arrested about 133, according to the numbers that I saw. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a war uh, that Jake Carruthers would call intellectual warfare as well. Not just physical killing; it's mental killing, and so we want to put that in the context of. Um, of Norman Lear, just for a little while. And we, we're not gonna mention him a lot except to use him as the social structure moment at, to juxtapose our governance formations and how those things commingle, how they fly apart, how narratives, see those African states categories, one of the things that is very strong about these categories is they apply to all human beings. They apply to all human society. They apply to all formations of people. Every group of people is going to have relationships to other people, social structure. We all live in social structures. Every group of people is going to have relationships to themselves, governance formations. Every group of people are going to have ways of knowing that change over time, that persist over time, that that kind of emerge and then recede and emerge and recede. Every group of people is going to take advantage of, invent, create, adapt science and technology. Every group of people is going to mark their moments in time with music and dance and art and all type of poetry and all forms of cultural meaning making. And every group of people over time is going to look back over time and ground their vision of the present and future in their memory and the momentum of their memory, movement and memory. So every group has it. But when we start talking about a the reason we had to develop those categories, which apply to everyone for Africana studies, is because people get confused. I'm doing black studies. You're not doing black studies. You're talking about black stuff. Those two things are very different. And you're doing it from history and philosophy and literature. You're doing it from sociology and anthropology. You're doing it. Yeah, that's fine. Do it. Do it. But all of those disciplines are white studies because all of them congeal around genealogies that are not ours. So what we're doing in Africana studies is doing what every other group of humans on the planet does, what every individual human being does, but we're doing it from a foundation of Africana. That is our challenge. And the universities tickle around the edges of it. They never wanted black studies and that's fine. This ain't about the universities because we jailbroken the universities. The source of our thinking through all these things are our communities. And the death of Norman Lear provides us an excellent opportunity as a common frame of reference to be able to think about how our governance formations have persisted and how our relationships with each other have persisted, how our ways of knowing have persisted, how we have adapted and used science and technology. We didn't invent television, but we damn sure used it with all other forms of mass media. And now we're in what some scholars have called the post-network age. 
but how many how much has really changed because norman lear's view of the world help frame the framework that gives us everything from Andy Cohen's Real Housewives series to being Mary Jane and a family business or, or all the Tyler Perry. In fact, Tyler Perry had this to say on the passing of, uh, of Norman Lear. Tyler Perry said, had it not been for Norman Lear, there wouldn't have been a path for me. Now, I'm not mad at him. How could you be mad at Tyler Perry? Because we understand in our governance formation, we have some conversations we need to have because there's no such thing as all good guys are all bad guys. Although when uh, Norman Lear created Archie Bunker and All in the Family, and, and we, you know, we can think about those series. All in the Family runs from 1971 to 79. Um, Maud, 1972 to 78. Uh, good Time, 74 to 79. Uh, the Jeffersons, 75 to 85. Interestingly enough, a 10-year period. Uh, do, do, do the Poor Whites remember one day at a time? That was a Norman Lear production, him and, and his buddy. Uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Bud Yorkin. Bud Yorkin, Tandem. Uh, Tandem Productions was their company that they did all this work. But when we think about the way that was paid, the framework that we have, not just in network television, when it comes to people of African descent, it has been overly influenced by a man who was came to prominence a man who was born in the 20s, U.S. Uh, Air, Army Corps, I think it was, military uh, veteran, you know, uh, talked his way into working for everybody from Danny Thomas to Dick Van Dyke and all them out there on the West Coast. Interestingly enough, lying all the way through his initial job as a publicist, he got fired because he was making up too many things. Then he went out to, to the West Coast and told Danny Thomas he was a writer for the New York Times. That's how he got his phone number. And Thomas just happened to say, well, I mean, you're very enterprising. I think I want to hire you. Yeah, but you told a lie to get I mean, Norm, Norman Lear perfected his uh, trajectory. <laughs> In fact, it's funny. That old buddy, uh, Adisa Ajamu, who... Uh, Brother Adesai, uh, psychologist by training, black psychologist, good brother, one of one of my age mates and comrades, our age mates and comrades. And, and Adesai used to say, he's one of Wade Noble's protégés, Baba Wade Noble's, Mama Maria Noble's out there in the West Coast in the Bay Area. And uh, he used to say, hey, the same person that gets in your car and then you pass the hat to get gas money and he don't put no money in, that's the same person that's gonna create, that's gonna commit bank fraud later on. Some some character flaws are just consistent over time. Norman Lear in licensee was an adult. I mean, I, you know, I, I have his biography somewhere in storage. I'm sure I would, if I was to go look at it, he might tell himself he might not. But the point is this, as I, as, I, as I keep going on this, the way that Norman Lear framed Black life in the United States of America in the 1970s, in spite of, in spite of Eric Monty, in spite of Esther Rowe, in spite of John Amos, in spite of Ralph Carter, in spite of them fighting back, pushing back, Janet Dubois and them pushing back, in spite of that, the way he framed our lives, who we are to other people, seeped into our governance formations. And in many ways, we became what we've always been in this set of crime called the United States of America, what Derek Bell called the involuntary sacrifice. The treatment of the American Negro becomes the barometer by which whiteness allows itself to celebrate itself and how much progress it's made. Yeah, we enslaved all of them. We kidnapped all of them. Yeah, we wiped out as many Native Americans as we could or indigenous people as we could. But look at us now. Sam Davis Jr. kissed Archie Bunker on the cheek. Oh, oh, that's very nice. Norman Lissier, he wrote, he wrote Archie Bunker in part based on his own father. 
And he said, because it proves the point that even in the biggest bigot, the biggest racist, there's something of humanity. Well, that's not, uh, that's not untrue. But what's your point? Oh, you're going to use the American Negro to make yourself feel better. So we're going to walk a little bit through this today. And, uh, you know, let me just tie off this, uh, this piece on the world that we're living in right now, even as we're coming uh, up on the conclusion of the climate summit that's taking place. You know, you have the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Saudis, and the all the oil companies are over there now in the so-called Middle East trying to derail any notion of climate change action by the governments of the world because they understand and they get on this thing called carbon capture now. The scientists know about carbon capture, the idea that you can keep mining and producing these fossil fuels but the carbon that the carbon dioxide that they uh, that they emit you should be able to cap that and bury it underground and they're like okay well are you going to do that well you know yeah we well i don't know we should in other words they're stalling because it's based on profit and so all it's been driven by profit but let me let me let me sit here for a second and, and think about this of course we know norman there made transition and as he did the social structure engages in attempting once again to reinscribe its own movement and memory, reinscribe its meaning and memory. And to do that, it can't do it by itself. You've got to recruit the Negroes who are going to help it. So, you know, it's very, it was very interesting to read these articles, to read these articles and to hear Tyler Perry said, had it not been for Norman Lear, there wouldn't have been a path for me. Well, that's not true. But I understand why you would think that's true because, you know, aspiration. Kenya Barris, blackish. Brother Barris. You know, Brother Barris was interviewed. This is an article in the New York Times uh, yesterday or today uh, where he said, you know, it's like asking, he's asking, asking about Norman Lear. He said, it's like asking someone who played basketball if Michael Jordan influenced them. Hmm, that's that's kind of smart ish. He said he changed the way contemporary storytelling was told in the genre that I was doing it in. Okay. There's a reason why I'm seeing the last two seasons of Blackish. I was skeptical from jump. And I'm not talking about the actors. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the premise. And I'm not Blackish. And perhaps, you know, I can certainly see in the kind of class angst, petty bourgeois class angst. Uh, that is voiced in Blackish, perhaps an echo of the Jeffersons, except you know Sherman Hemsley and 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 and, and Isabel Sanford, you know they are not they're not from the same generation as Anthony Anderson and um, Sister Ross, Tracy Ellen Ross. So the angst may look a little different, but the theme remains the same. The echoing theme, the angst. You know, and yeah, certainly the, the themes that are confronted in Blackish do echo some of the themes that were confronted in the Jeffersons. Um, so maybe Kenya Barris really isn't too far off in terms of his vision. But anytime I walk on the campus of Temple University and now HBCUs, I saw a young person with a Howard University shirt on that said HBCU-ish. Now why you get, I get Temple. I went to Temple. You know, a lot of people think that Temple is a black school because if you go in the daytime, in the middle of the day, you see all these black people in the student center and walking around, you might think, oh, man, it's a black. So I get why the black students there might put HBCU-ish on their shirts. But when 
the black students at HBCU put HBCU-ish on their shirts, I'm saying this is the insidious nature of popular culture, mass mediation. This is how things penetrate. And now, as to quote Jesse Fawcett from the first quarter of the 20th century, there is confusion. <laughs> there is confusion. And, you know, I don't lay that at the feet of Norman Lear. Norman, Norman Lear worked and was very successful in the world he inherited. However, when it comes to the American Negro and the momentum of memory, here, the New York Times and all the mass media, CNN, you know, all these people broadcast. They, let's go find these Negroes who have outsized influence in the post-network age of mass mediation, who have uh, found their way as cultural meaning makers into the science and technology of mass broadcast, mass mediation, mass media, and ask them to reinscribe for our social structure the value of this man, Norman Lear. Now, are they going to mention Eric Monte? Maybe in passing, and even if they did, it ain't gonna make it into the article. So I'm continue to read this, and you know, Jimmy Walker, they interviewed, because they gotta interview JJ, Jimmy Walker said this week that Norman, he said he told Norman Lear. Now, mind you, nobody knew who, how old Jimmy Walker was at the time. Uh, in an article I'm going to go through in a minute that I think is one that everyone should read, that September 1975 article, Ebony Magazine, written by a brother named Louis Robinson. I'm going to talk about that brother as well. Over 30 years, he worked for Ebony, wrote many cover stories. We're going to talk about him in a minute as well. But... In that article, he, this is 1975, after Good Times had been on for a year, and the cast was fighting Norman Lear. Uh, this is, of course, after he jacked uh, Eric Monte. But Jimmy Walker's interviewed, and they, and then uh, what Robinson says is, nobody really knows, is he 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, somewhere between 25 and 30, it's not clear. But here's Jimmy Walker now as an old man. He's in his 70s now. This is what Jimmy Walker said this week about Norman Lear. He said, when Norman Lear was telling me they wanted to put some social stuff in on JJ. Now, mind you, the reason they're doing that is because the cast, particularly Esther Rowe and John Amos, are pushing back against him. This is what Jimmy Walker said. He told uh, Norman Lear. He said, Norman, if you want to deliver a message, go work for Western Union. <laughs> I'm here to work. I'm here to have fun, baby. I'm here to do comedy. Now, at the time, four of the five shows on network television that had black uh, characters prominent, uh, featured prominently were comedies. The fifth was like Get Christy Love. And the black person that was in it was always doing comic relief. So it's minstrelsy. It's Amos and Andy. It's, you know, I mean, you know, for every Julia, there's a dozen other ones. For every attempt I had in McDaniel to get something on the air like Beulah, you, know, you, you still got to tell a few jokes. Tell a few jokes. That's why Eric Montre is like that Yasa ball stuff. That's what y'all like. Eric Montre said, normally there was a racist, but he didn't think he was. And of course, in many ways, particularly when you think about somebody like Derrick Bell writing about this or any number of people, oh, what am I saying, Derrick Bell? Martin Luther King. Hey, Nubia, remember we read page by page, where do we go from here, chaos of community? And Martin Luther King wrote that, you know, in many ways, the worst racist is the white liberal because they don't think they're racist. I'm not coming for Norman Lear. I don't have to. He's standing right here. What I am doing, however, is using the Africana studies framework to separate. Yeah, I said it, separate. It's artificial in real life because we all live together, but it's absolutely valid conceptually because this is what disciplines do. They allow you to see the real world in ways that allow you to make a better world after you've distinguished out the commingling because right now there is confusion. 
And Norman Lear made a powerful arc of life on fomenting confusion, on creating something called an American identity that people are now celebrating. And you cherry pick and get a few Negroes to come in. Of course, you get Jimmy Walker, who at the time he was cast as JJ, was a stand-up comedian, a working stand-up comedian. So of course, it was no problem. Who said in the article I'm going to mention now, Louis Robinson's 1975 article, September 1975 article, he had no relationship outside of the set with any of the other members of the cast any of the other members of the cast. So now you come back in 2023, December 2023, and interview him about Norman Lear, and you put in his mouth the words he told Norman Lear as a 20-something. He wasn't there to do social messages. You want to send a message, you go to Western Union. Now, has he learned something since then? Well, I'm not sure. I'll be seeing him with Ann Coulter from John Taylor. But, 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 but they do say, well, he, later on, he grew to appreciate that. Well, he didn't grow to appreciate it. He was force-fed by Esther Rowe, and he was force-fed by John Amos. John Amos, who was the last person to sign his contract in the first, uh, I think, this year one or year two, season two of Good Times, because, and they said, it, and what Louis Robinson reports is it wasn't about money. It was about the portrayal of his character. So what did they do? And he said, and Esther Rowe was like, they, they can't do that to me about these black characters. They could do it. Uh, in fact, let me just get to Louis Robinson. Louis Robinson, as I said, I, I encourage everybody to look this up. Because again, who do we belong to? Who do we belong to is the question we're raising this morning in the wake of this passing and this common frame of reference, which is why any teacher in any valence from the youngest child to the oldest human being will tell you that teachable moments shouldn't be passed up if we have the capacity to learn from them. And so, you know, Norman Lear passed. People know who that is. Eric Mate says, this man stole from me. Many people didn't know who that is, now you do. And in the conversation, we can use this as a lens through which to use our Africana Studies framework to raise all kinds of issues of the human condition. So uh, Louis Robinson worked for Ebony Magazine. He was born around 1926. He made transition in 2015 lived a long life, uh, just short of his 90th birthday. Louis Robinson graduated from Lincoln University in Missouri. That's right, uh, the HBCU West out of Mississippi. Uh, beautiful school, uh, incredible you know, legacy, continues to this day. Louis Robinson was a journalist. In fact, it was the only historically black college in the country at the time that had a degree granting program in journalism. He was a journalist, this man, Louis Robinson. And Louis Robinson worked for Ebony Magazine for over 30 years. In fact, before he worked for Louis Mag uh, for Ebony Magazine, he started a newspaper in Texas, Tyler, Texas. Y'all know about the Tyler Rose, the great, uh, what's the brother's name? Number 34 for the Houston Oilers, Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell still walks the earth, the Tyler Rose. But anyway, uh, Louis Robinson started a little newspaper called the Texas, I'm sorry, the Tyler Tribune. It was so successful after a couple of years, it was purchased and rebranded in Dallas as the Dallas Morning Star. Uh, he then got hired eventually by Mr. Johnson at Johnson Publications, and he wrote for Ebony for over 30 years, did a lot of features. His beat was entertainment. So he did sports, he did mostly film, television, and he wrote this feature article, cover article, and those of you who are old enough to remember those uh, those covers, those Ebony Magazine covers, this is when Ebony was writing hardcore work and just, you know, again, that age has passed for all 
mass media publications. Ain't none of them. Every every one of them, including Essence and Ebony, are shadows of their former selves because our literacy, it isn't them, it's us. Our literacy is a shadow of its former self. We don't read like we used to, but you remember those covers. You remember the cover with the whole cast of Good Times on the cover of Ebony Magazine. That was the September 1975 cover. And the, and, and, and the headline was Bad Times on the Good Times set. And this is what Louis Robinson writes at the beginning of that article. He says, many good times performers feel like they're responsible for, quote, cleaning up that stereotypical image of blacks that has persisted in television and film for decades. So Robinson is saying they're on the set. They're glad to be working, but they are pushing back. Esther Roll. In fact, let me pause here and integrate these other Norman Lear vehicles because uh, All the Family was first, 1971. And let's let's take a minute through the songs. Prof, it was so funny before we came on live. You were, you know, humming and singing, which I love to hear your voice. You got a wonderful voice, y'all. Y'all know everybody. We know we know what it is. Talk, you know, singing those songs because those theme songs. Norman Lee didn't write those theme songs for his vehicles. In fact, some of them were written by black people, others were not. Well, that first theme song from All in the Family, two white writers, right? But they they frame the social structure and the movement and memory in that social structure of the racists of the 1970s. Carol O'Connor, Gene Stapleton sitting at the piano. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Some of y'all know about that Mitch Miller. Oh, guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. Think of it as a MAGA theme from 1971. And of course, how can you know? You got to attack everybody. Uh, and uh, and you knew who you were then. That's Gene Stapleton. Carol kind of comes back in. Boys were boys and men were men. Hardly subtle. Mister, we could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. <laughs> Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. Hardly subtle. G.R.O. LaSalle ran great. Those were the days. Okay, there's Carol O'Connor framing it. You drop a couple of people in. You heard Eric Matre come in. He wrote one episode of All in the Family because he's going to introduce those characters called the Jeffersons, the next door neighbors. Um, People might not know that there was a show that Norman Lear tried to uh, mount, got on the air back in the 90s, right? 1993, 1984, called 704 Hauser. Any of y'all remember that? Uh, you know, I'm traveling. Actually, I'm here. Ironically, who, who do we belong to? Because this is around the time of year that the we have the annual retreat for the Black Family Summit. Uh, the Black Family Summit, I'm here, back here in Baltimore. Uh, shout out to all of our people. Um, Sister Zakia, who is the convener of the Black Family Summit, uh, she took over for uh, Zakia Newland. She took over for Baba Leonard Dunstan, who is here, who is convener emeritus, and our Jolly resident Jolly. A lot of elders here, a lot of Black organizations, and we sit in council for three days to really delve deep into the questions that really kind of face us as a people. And so I'm here for the Black Family Summit. So I'm not. You know, typically when I'm traveling, as we move into 2024 and increase our capacity, I'm not able to pull up all the screens so I can see in the Nubia chat and see in the YouTube side as people. I'm sure some people remember 704 Hauser, and you may have even put it in the chat. I hope you did. I'll go back and review. But this 704 Hauser 
vehicle that Norman Lear created and got on the air in 1994. See, why are you allowed to be failures once you get to a certain level of success? You just put stuff. It didn't last but a few weeks, but the premise was it was a black family that had moved into Archie Bunker's house. <laughs> well, 20 years before, of course, the black family didn't live in his house. They lived next door, the Jeffersons. And so uh, you see Eric Mache, of course, introducing those characters at the behest of his co-writer, Mike Evans, who had played, of course, the son uh, who disappears. But Again, Norman Lear and white privilege, and, and I'm not a racist, and his attitude toward black men and black women. Because, you know, y'all know me, and those of you who know me know that community is the anchor of our human existence. And while there are gendered dimensions to that, I'm not an intersectional kind of understand the value of intersectionality. And by the way, shout out to the people at Advanced Placement who have just released the next, last, the next iteration of the AP African-American Studies course. It still is an Africana Studies, the way I would define it, because we've been doing that for three and a half years in a very broad global sense here. And of course, growing by leaps and bounds, week after week, month after month, now year after year in Nubia and narrative. But it is a valuable course for introducing young people to the study of African people. It is very valuable. And uh, intersectionality has been now repositioned to a more prominent role than the fourth unit of that course. Um, this certainly comes after the, the intellectual wars about what is in, in the course. By the way, everything in the course now was in the course before. It just meant repositioned. Some things have been elevated to prominence. So I just wanted to, to mention that. But again, community is at the center of our thing. Not So the conceptual tools are important, but ultimately we live in the world. And so uh, in 1971, you see all in the family come in because that's all in the white family. But the Negroes live in the United States. You got to deal with race. And so, well, you don't have to deal with race, but this ain't the 50s. You know, this isn't the, the 40s or 30s where you can be black on the radio with white actors and then come on TV. Now you need black actors. And so people like hearing Louis Gates say, I finally remember Amos and Andy. And plus they had all black actors. We understand, Skip. I understand why. You know, you understand why you would do that. But ultimately, this is the 70s. And as we know, what happens in mass mediated entertainment broadcast network broadcast entertainment in the United States, Great Britain too, but the United States being the cultural polyglot and set the colony with all these people who you brought and tried to kill and then try to kill these other people, but they survived and now you all got to live together. What you happen is you're having contestation over memories. So in broadcast television, what we've seen is that a generation will go back to the previous generation and keep trying to create movement and memory. So in the 70s is when we get happy days, Laverne and Shirley, we get all in the family, all those. And then in the 80s, we get those black shows, 227 and all them, you know, Amen and all those. And then in the 90s, we see that as network television continues to persist, the black shows that emerge, but you also see the emergence of something like Fox and you see the kind of irreverence. But what they will do is go back to the previous generation and mine it for movement and, and memory, for the, that kind of movement and memory. How do we remember the 50s? And, but it's in the 70s. So you bring them forward. Those were the days. He's going back to the 40s. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. My daddy played Glenn Miller all the time in his house. But that's the 1940s, right? Little Brown Jug, Pennsylvania 6, 5,000, all those, all those tunes. You know, Mitch Miller's hit parade, right? You know, all these things. They're going back to the 50s, the 40s and 50s in the 70s. Well, here come this black family. They got something to say about it. 
So what happens? Of course, Montre introduces the Jeffersons and they get a theme song. The Jeffersons come online in 1975. But the year after All in the Family, we'll get to the Jeffersons, the year after All in the Family comes Maud. Now, you know, the blessed music was and is black music. So who do they get to write and perform the theme for Maud? Maud is the white woman, Archie Bunker's cousin. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what Norman Lizzie. Maud is Archie Bunker's cousin. She's going to be as far on the quote-unquote left as Archie Bunker is on the right. However, this is a social structure framework. Even to this day, we talk about left and right. What are you talking about? We need to have some distance from this to understand that politics, when you commingle it, there is confusion. That's why he says something like, well, black people are socially liberal, but culturally conservative. Okay, you're still trying to jam us into your frameworks. I understand sometimes, in fact, there's great overlap, but we need a conceptual framework where we can got to distinguish ourselves for a minute so we can talk about the ranges of opinion in our community because it still matters that our community is something that is constantly under assault. We don't belong to you. I know you would like to think we do, but we don't. And you prove it every day when you assault us based on race, based on race. So at any rate, they get Donnie Holloway. Donny Hathaway writes the theme for Maud, this white woman proto, or I guess proto-feminist, I suppose you would call her. We talked about Sandra O'Connor last week. And what is she doing? She's pushing the envelope in the 1970s. The, 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 the two-part, uh, two-episode uh, sequence where she terminated a pregnancy, had an abortion. This was shocking in the 1970s. Maud, as I said, runs from 70, uh, 72 to 78. And Donnie Hathaway every night with that piano, bo, 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 bo. Lady Godiva was a freedom rider. She didn't care if the whole world looked naked. Joan of Arc with the Lord to guide her. She was a sister who really could. No black woman. Lady, Lady Bonner was the first bar burner. Ain't you glad she showed up? Now the sisters, oh yeah. And when the country was falling apart, Betsy Ross got it all sold up. This soulful man singing this song, he ain't mentioned nothing about uh, Catherine Elon, the sister who stitched together the Haitian flag because he ain't Haitian, he's an African in the United States. So Betsy Ross got it all sold up. And then there's Maud, and then there's Maud, sister singing in the back. Okay, so you got the black song in, and you get the black woman coming in the kitchen. And that's Esther Rose. Esther Rowe was trained in theater, professionally trained artists, just like Donnie Hathaway was trained. Although he had to fight the petty bourgeois Negroes that uh, him and Richard Smallwood and all them, shout out to Richard Smallwood, just had a birthday and they had a celebration. I thought about you, Baba J, Jeremiah Wright. Some people would accuse Jeremiah Wright of having a theme song. As Bernie Casey said, every good hero should have one. Total praise by Richard Smallwood. But Richard Smallwood, when he was at Howard, along with Donnie Hathaway and them, Roberta Flatt, they had to fight. They had to fight Howard because they wouldn't let him play gospel music on the pianos and fine arts. Of course, a lot has changed since then. It was around the time Felicia, uh, and Felicia and Debbie Ayers were uh, Allen were now were, were in the uh, fine arts department. So that pushback is why we had the celebration we had at Howard last Sunday. A brilliant uh, curation of black cultural of cultural meaning making, Africana cultural meaning making at Chapel. It was a wonderful moment. But that ain't this ain't then. So Donny Hathaway's recruited to sing the, the theme for Maud. And that's about as black as it gets as Florida Evans is the other pillar of blackness. And she, like Donny Hathaway and a lot of those folks who found their way on the television, not Jimmy Walker. Jimmy Walker, after all, was a comedian. And he said, I'm 
I'm not here to be funny. You want to send a message. Okay, but Esther Rowe is different. Esther Rowe is a theater trained woman, a dance trained woman. You see some of the speeches of Malcolm X on 125th Street, and you see some of the cultural events that took place. They would have dancers and drumming and singing. And you see Esther Rowe, you look at Eyes on the Prize, the second episode, a uh, second series where they talk about Malcolm, the episode on Malcolm, the, 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 the installment on Malcolm. He say episode again in this language. But you see Esther Rowe very quickly doing a dance. And so it's very, uh oh, wait, did I lose my uh, volume? Prof, can you hear me? Yeah, you can, I can hear you, but okay, you're, okay, very good. Yeah, your internet is a little sketchy though. Sometimes. Is it? Is it? A little okay, bit, but me, it's okay. We, we, we will plow through. We'll we plow through it. Okay, I don't want to. Okay, that's why I was worried a little bit about that internet. Um, I always worry about that when I'm not, when I'm out mobile. So, yeah, but Esther Rowe comes in, and Esther Rowe is very interesting. In, uh, the article Louis Robinson wrote, this is what Esther Rose said about her role on Maude and how it differed from the role on Good Times. Social structure. Here's the social structure comment she says. She says, what I do in my madam's house is a facade. Ooh, social structure. Who are Africans to other people? Then she gives the governance line to Louis Robinson. And she says, what I do at home is me. What I do at my madam's house is a facade. What I do at home is me. Sonia Hurston used to write about that. I got one mind for them to see. I got another mind for me to see. In other words, this is why we had to have an African studies framework. Now, she didn't have an African studies framework in the 1970s when she's giving this interview to Dewey Robinson. However, she had African. See, the thing that really is a little off-putting to some folk about academics, but it shouldn't be too much because most people don't pay attention to any academics, and that's the way it should be, quite frankly, is that they invent frameworks and then say that this is the thing that reveals everything. No, we've had good sense for a long time. That's why the African States framework to me is so very important because what we're reinforcing is we. this is about us, and we are the authorities. You don't get trained in being us. In fact, Janet Du Bois said this when they were fighting Norman Lear over the portrayal of black people on good times. She said, I got these white writers writing about me as a black woman. I'm a black woman. Y'all can't tell me how to be a black woman. Esther Rose said this to Norman Lear. She said, we're going to argue about some things. And ultimately, I'm going to win when it comes to black women because I've been black the longest. This is one thing I love about Esther Rose. Esther Rose could put shade. You know, you know how black people could put shade on you. She said, I've been black the longest. She didn't say, I'm black and you're not. What is she implying by saying it that way? Is she implying that you black to these white people? In fact, I'm sure you probably like Ken Burns. You think you're an honorary Negro. I never forget when Howard University gave Ken Burns an honorary degree. We sitting there at graduation and he stands up and he looks out at the crowd and he says, today I feel like I'm among my people. Yeah, because you're the blackest one of all. You're blacker than me. I, I've been black my whole life because you invented whiteness and then used me as the foil to reinforce whiteness, which means you invented blackness too. Blackness is a figment of your imagination, whatever. And then we took it and tried to make it into something else. But, you know, ultimately, we're going to get rid of that too. But, you know, yeah, when you've created whiteness as the framework, then your blackness becomes the authoritative blackness. And Esther Rose said, I've been black, 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 I've been black the longest. Meaning, well, I got a governance blackness. But at any rate, she then gets her show. Okay, they spin it off. Now, Eric Montre, I mean, you, I mean, this is a guy who created Cooley High, as we said, you know, good times, the Jefferson, Jefferson's then good times. Well, actually, no, let me think. Uh, good times comes on the air. Yeah, first, 74, 
to 79. The Jeffersons comes right after that. Jeffersons comes on 75. Because remember what he said about how Norman Lear pitched and got good times, got the Jeffersons. He he dusts off what this brother did after writing that one episode for All in the Family. So when they, as as you read the article in Ebony, they walk through it. And she says, you know, I'm not taking this without having a partner. I want a husband. And he'd be a black family. This is not a Norman Lear convention. And you heard what Montre said about his problem with black men. He had a problem with black women too, but the problem was different. And when you're grappling with these folk, it's, a, it's, it's, how should I put this? Oh, well, it, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So here now, you're on the verge and you've birthed a new show in network television, Good Times. Janet Du Bois writes the theme for Good Times. Janet DuBois, who ends up playing uh, Wilona, the neighbor. Janet DuBois, who was an actress, a producer, a director, had done all this work, and a songwriter. She writes the theme for Good Times without seeing the show or none of it, not even knowing any treatment. So, actually, no. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I'm she wrote the Jeffersons. She wrote the yeah. Jeffersons, right. The yeah. two white Moving dudes wrote Good Times. That's right. Moving on up. That's right. She she wrote the theme for the That's right. Thank you, Prof. She wrote the themes for the Jeffersons without seeing the show. The two white boys write Good Times. And of course, I mean, it, I would, of course, correct it in my head because you can tell the white boys wrote it because it's that stereotype. Good times anytime you need a payment. Anytime you need a friend, got that gospel humor. Anytime you're out from under, not getting hassled, not getting hustled. Hassle and hustle. I'm sure they just clapped themselves on the back and went and had a drink after they got that alliteration. You know, keeping your head above water. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Got a little, little gospel piano, a little blues, a little note in there. Making a way when you can. Black life is struggle. Temporary layoffs, good times. The, the the juxtaposition, right? You know, we likes it. Mm-hmm, yes, sir. Easy credit ripoffs, good times. No wonder Tyler Perry said he paid the role for me. It sounds just like every damn sitcom Tyler Perry has ever done. Meet the Browns, taste the Browns, wear the Browns, be the Browns, all of that. And then... <laughs> <laughs> scratching and surviving, hanging and a jiving. Was that what they mean? Yes, what the songwriter said. That's the lyric. Hanging and a jiving, hanging and a jiving. Really, is that what we doing? But at the end of the show, wait, I thought it was. It, I thought it was hanging in a job line. You said. Well, they they, they they clarified it. They were those two songwriters were approached about that and said in the first season they said that was what it was. But then they came back and said hanging and a jiving is what they meant the line to be. So, I mean, you know, either way, it's bad. Oh, you know what I'm saying? But it's very interesting because, as my mom would say, Black people say, ways of knowing, even a broke clock is white twice a day. When you get to the credits at the end of the episodes, just looking out of the window, watching the asphalt grow, that's a powerful moment because you think about that. Those housing projects, Ida B. Wells, Cabrini Green in Chicago, thinking how it all looks handed down. And here you go again. Keeping your head. Whoa. That's the role. There's a, there's, a, there's a photograph 
I don't know, was Manetta Slet? I need to check the photo credits, but everybody can check it. The September 1975 issue of Ebony Magazine. There is a photograph of Esther Rowe in a white head wrap and an African dress, looking like the same dancer she was in the 50s when Malcolm was speaking on 125th Street in front of Mr. Michaud's bookstore. There's a photograph of her surrounded by children in the front of the Cabrini Green projects because Esther Rowe would go over there and visit with the children who lived in those housing projects and with the families. Because for Esther Rowe, the importance of her being on television was to be an inspiration, to be instructive, and she would not take a role that would demean her because again, as this brother said when he opened Louis Robinson, he said, these actors thought that their job was to cleanse the stained image of blacks. So when you see that photograph, you realize, huh, Norman Lear gonna keep her up in the projects, her and her family, which he had to feed him a husband. But when she wasn't at work, she said, and that John Amos, you know, John Amos, white woman, marrying white woman, okay. You made the life your personal choice, but you know, life is complicated. He was the head of uh, the United Negro College Fund, did a lot of fundraising in Southern California while he was out there in, in television, uh, what is it, Studio City Hollywood. He's out there leading the uh, the movement in the UNCF to raise money for black people. There's a picture of him in the magazine article with Mervyn Diamond, Congressman Diamond, the black congressman, one of the black congressmen in Southern California. So you see them doing this work. It's very interesting. Now, what Louis Robinson gets into in this article is he says, as this series unfolded after the first year, the second year, he says, in the second year, the role of Michael that's Ralph Carter, who still walks the earth. Brother Ralph Carter. Last time I saw him was at John Henry Clark's, the dedication of John Henry Clark reading room, when we talked about that. Uh, Michael Carter has been on the front lines in Harlem all the time with those black New Yorkers, First World, the study group, which eventually became part of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. All of them, Mama Kepa Neptis, Baba Bill Jones, that whole crew. Shout out to love to all of those ancestors and all the people who continue that work. Ralph Carter was there. And went to school with, uh, among others, Wesley Snipes, Larry Fishburne. You know, first time that I saw Wesley Snipes and Lawrence Fishburne in, in, in person was, well, Ralph Carter and, and Lawrence Fishburne, because Wesley Snipes couldn't come to the debut of the documentary he made on John Henry Clark, because he was off shooting one of the Blades, one of the Blade sequels. And when we all went to New York to the town hall for the debut of the film, Ralph Carter and Lawrence Fishburne came out because they were all friends and they were all knowing each other for years. And it was Ralph Carter who they credited with giving the consciousness, putting the consciousness up under them. The consciousness that would have Wesley Snipes do something, for example, like buy the credits or, 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 or acquire the rights to make Black Panther, to make Blade and them. Of course, he never got to make Black Panther. But the point is that Ralph Carter is at the center of that. But in the article, what Thompson talks, what Louis Robinson talks about is that the 14-year-old in the show his role was subtly diminished over episodes and then and then into the next season. And the role of the clown was enhanced. Jimmy Walker's was enlarged. And, and then Esther Roll says in, in, in the article, they couldn't do that to me. They knew that wouldn't fly with me. So what do they do? They go to the stand-up comedian and they take it out on the on the young boy. They couldn't do that to me. And then they go to Jimmy Walker, and Jimmy Walker says, as I said before, I don't think anybody 20 years from now will remember what I said, how stupid that was. But you in 1975, you think ain't nobody going to remember this. He says, I don't want to be a follower or a leader. That's what he says. Remind me of uh, another man who should have turned this down. But how could he turn it down? Because ego is a hell of a drug. 
not unlike cocaine. Shout out to Dave Spell and Rick James, but and uh, Charlie Murphy, but uh, a man who should have turned it down when they came to him and said, "Son or sir, son in my mind, sir out my mouth," because I don't want you to beat me up because you six foot sit two and seventy pounds. Uh, Charles Bartley, we want you to sit on this couch next to Gayo King and interview the United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on the Israel conflict. And he didn't say, you got your damn mind. I talk about basketball with Shaq and Ernie and Kenny. And then, no, what he said was, okay, so you see him there struggling to ask about the Israel conflict with the Secretary of State. This is the same man who said a generation ago, I am not a role model. In other words, it's not enough to tell people you still took the job. And when Jimmy Walker, echoing what would become Charles Bartley's line, famous line a generation later, I'm not a role model, says, you know, I, I don't want to be a follower. I don't want to be a leader. Jimmy Walker says, I want to be a doer. Dude, you sound like Bootney Farnsworth. Well, actually, you are Bootney Farnsworth, so okay. Unfortunately, you and Charles Bartley couldn't meet in the middle of a ring like let's do it again and knock each other out because there's no Bill Cosby or Sidney Poitier to uh, hypnotize you. Oh, by the way, Sidney Poitier was one of the first interviewees from Louis Robinson who started writing about Sidney Poitier around 1955. In fact, upon his passing, Sidney Poitier said this man was one of our best in terms of chronicling our art, our life and our culture. And it's all in the pages of Ebony Magazine, cover story after cover story after cover story. So you see this battle going on. Now, John Amos, Louis, uh, I'm sorry, Leah, Louis Robinson says, John Amos, right, he writes in there that he was the last one to sign his contract because he didn't like how we were being portrayed. This is good times, right? That's good times, 1974 to 1979. And eventually, of course, what do they do? Because the actors are pushing back. Robinson chronicles this. What happens? Well, they said, we don't like the fact that Jimmy Walker ain't got no job. Jimmy Walker is like, when I'm not on set, I don't see these people that I'm acting with. Now, every last one of them, including his age mate, including uh, his age mate. So I'm thinking about, uh, what's the sister that played Thelma? Oh, what's her name? Bernadette Stannis. Bernadette Stannis, yes, thank you. Bernadette Stannis, who, you know, during this age of unenlightened Black male fantasy, along with Pam Greer, was on every barbershop wall in the United States of America from being the jet <laughs> centerfold of the week. But Bernadette Stan is like, I'm the only teenage black girl on, on television with a consistent role. I want more. I, don't, I can be a straight man to Jimmy Walker, but I need and want more. So eventually, of course, you see her get married, you see the engagement, you know her. But this, those changes on good times weren't Norman Lear. Now, of course, cultural meaning making and movement and me well, movement and memory in the social structure is going to rewrite this. Talk about how progressive he was. No, no, these are black actors pushing back. And I'm going to wind this up in a second. They are across all of Norman Lear's project because we even got to the one. We ain't got the Samson son. Oh, see, 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 you can get away with that with a 14 year old and a stand up comedian you can pull off and made famous who, by the way, while, you know, John Amos is out there raising money with UNCF and Esther Rowe got all these culture projects going on and visiting people. Jimmy Walker is on the stand up circuit when he's not on that. And he sold 100,000 copies of his album Dynamite <laughs> during the time. And Louis Robinson writing about that, too. And got these T-shirts, remember them tight ass T-shirts with his face on them and the, and the, and the chicken hat that he had when he was working. So he said, no, this got to change. So what do they do? They put him in art school. 
That ain't no Norman Lear invention. That's the black cast saying you got the little boy who's a genius and doing all this academic work and you make him the militant and you got the older brother who ain't got no job, want to be an artist, but it's made Ernie Barnes paintings are well positioned, is beautiful. But at the same time, what is it? They put him in art school because all oh, that's black people pushing back. Now, of course, the Jeffersons come, and that's when Janet Du Bois, who hadn't seen the show, who also complains in good times because she says, yeah, I get the sass and all this, but I've been a black woman my whole life. I don't like these white writers telling me I'm just going to bust in. Probably not in that. Mm -mm, mm -mm. They're constantly fighting Norman Lear and his writer's room. Understand. The Jeffersons come 1975. And of course, well, I'm moving on up. Moving on up. So now you got the class issue emerged because Jefferson and them have moved away from Archie Bunker. They in a deluxe apartment in the sky. Fish don't burn in the kitchen. Beanies don't burn on the grill. Took a lot, lot of trying just to get up that hill. Now we're up in the big leagues, getting our turn at back. Okay, beautiful. And, and, and you see that struggle now. They're going to be on there fighting because guess what? Guess what? These ain't kids. They're trained actors. If they're comedians, they are comedians from vaudeville, burlesque, and the black circuit, the governance formation. The social structure is not what informed them. It's the cultural meaning making of Africana. So when you put Sanford and Son on the air, notice Sanford and Son is the one of them shows that didn't have no lyrics. Yeah, because see, that's Quincy Jones. And Quincy Jones composes the street beater. And the cast there, that's an ensemble cast of black comedians. Here come Red Fox. Here come the Wanda Page. I mean, you know, I want to, I had to go down and do some drilling down to see, but I want to see who wrote or what's the provenance of, remember when Bubba was like, I want my daddy records. <laughs> see, normally they write that. <laughs> I want my daddy records. Like, you see that intervention. But see, LaWanda Page in Sanford and Son, Isabel Sanford in the Jeffersons, Esther Roll in Good Times, they ain't no kids. Even the young girl is like, yeah, burn that standards. I need more to do. But these sisters is like, nah, we ain't, you know. And John Amos, you can't control John Amos, but <laughs> Monte done told you about Norman Lear and the American male. So what do they do on Good Times? Well, they say that John Amos is going back to school too. And he finds a job. In Alaska. Whoa, what just happened? Oh, this nigga got to go. You got to go. And here we are. Jimmy Walker said, anybody can remember what I said uh, 20 years from now. Well, here we are almost 50 years from now. And if don't nobody know nothing about good times, they never seen no episode. They know about that punch bowl and damn, 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 James. Norman Lee. Yeah left an indelible stamp on the soul of black people, the one that we got to scrub out because that generation of actors damn near tried in the words of Louis Robinson to cleanse the stain the image of blacks. And now that Norman Lear is gone, that image persists. Shout out to Andy Cohen because reality TV emerges in that post network era. And so, you know, we, we don't need script writers. In a minute with AI, we ain't gonna need none of it. All we gotta do is mind the minstrelsy and keep this minstrelsy going and keep reinforcing this foolishness. And now in the post broadcast era at all, while we're here week after week, while we're here every day, 
in Nubia in there. While Karen Hunter, while Prof Hunter is there every day in Sirius, well, guess what? A billion flowers have bloomed. Now y'all talking about some cat named Charleston White, and he arguing with Umar Minstrelsy. Okay, speak your speech. And now the confusion, because there is confusion. But Norman Lear represents an impulse that has all of that confusion retreat to the same meaning, whether it be the Breakfast Club, whether it be Cameron and, and Mace, whether it be, you know, I don't know, anybody, you think Gilbert Arenas and all the sports podcasts, whether it Shannon be Sharp. all the Shannon Sharp. Shannon Sharp, Unk, yeah, yeah, Unk, and you I mean, come on now, oh my God, I saw a clip of that the other day, now he's trending, why, because he's on there with Chad Oko, Chad Johnson, my God, Chad 85, or whatever he didn't renamed himself, and talking about this boy, so I was stripping for the BBWs, and then here come Unk talking about, yeah, you know, it's, you ain't a lady if you ain't 180, mm -hmm. is that what you told your non-black wife, a husband, uh, uh, girlfriend, whatever, the point is this, Minstrelsy. Norman Lear is not responsible. He just the latest iteration of the minstrelsy that those black actors and actresses was trying to fight against and get overwhelmed because we don't we commingle the social structure, who we are to other people, with the governance formation, who we are to each other. Who do we belong to? The social structure keeps telling you, you are the foil. You're the comic relief. You're the thing to be scared of and hated at the same time and loved secretly or not so secretly at the same time, which is why on the Jeffersons. Come on, Lenny. Lenny Kravitz. You mad because black people, Michael Harriet bodied Lenny Kravitz. So we ain't got to even talk about that in the grill. So Mike took care of it. And Mike writes about uh, Eric Montre as well. So, you know, Lenny Kravitz, man, you know, black people don't, you know, give me, feature me prominently, don't give me the love. Come on. Man, I love your music, man. You're a good brother, but let's be very clear. Your mama, who's a Howard University graduate, Roxy Roker, and the white man who she was married to on the Jeffersons, that's the first interracial kiss. And guess what? It's progress in Norman Lear's world. Now, was that a secret to black people? Mm-mm. Black people, like every other human being, been crossing all kind of barriers for years. But guess what? That's a big thing. You went from Sammy Davis Jr. kissing Archie Bunker on the cheek. And by the way, the reports are that Sammy Davis Jr. will have his taping and filming schedule if he's on a movie set or something arranged so he could watch All in the Family. Well, you went from that to Roxy Roker kissing uh, the dude who played, uh, I think it was Franklin Culver, played her husband on The Jeffersons. And that's interracial, right? Okay. And in her real life, you know, she, she did that too. And, you know, here's Lenny Kravitz complaining. But guess what? That's the world that the man who had your mom employed made or at least continue to make. The stereotypes are there. Don't be mad, because as Mike said in his article, where are the black news media outlets that you gave interviews to, like Vanity Fair? Where are the black publicists? Where are the black, don't be mad now, Lenny. Don't be mad, because, you know, yeah, you was married Lisa Bonet, I had a wonderful daughter, things went, like Lisa Bonet, who emerges in the moment of the cosmos, show people wanted to crucify Felicia Rashad for you know defending Bill Cosby but you know what let's think about what they were doing together in the 80s and early 90s that birthed a different world I mean Bill Cosby during this period is one of those people who is not only an actor he's trying to acquire the clout to push back too and it gets a to be a complicated story but this ain't no story we don't have in a conversation with social structure scholars well I think I don't care what you think 
don't care what you think after we've had a thorough argument, debate, falling out, made up, hugged it out, and continue. Now, what was you saying? Why? Because what you're not going to do is come in here and bring that confusion. There is confusion, and you're not going to bring it out in the death of Norman Lear by reinforcing this social structure, cultural meaning, making and movement and memory. We're not going to do it. So let me kind of wind this up. So thinking about in the wake of the 70s and these struggles that we fought to represent ourselves, to represent ourselves, struggles we fought to find in our governance formations, some form of cultural meaning making that we could relate to, which is why years after all those shows went off the air, and I should mention that near the end of his life, uh, Norman Lear, among the projects he was trying to get done or begin or undertake was an animated version of Good Times, really. The last Emmy Award he won, remember that? What was it, Prof? Was it Jimmy Kimmel that redid all those shows with like new ads, like Jamie Foxx played George Jefferson? Jimmy Jimmy Fallon, and I think- Fallon, Steph it was Fallon. Yeah, Steph Curry actually did the Good Times one. Steph Curry, the basketball uh, phenom, also produced yes. that, the Good Times one. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, you know, Jimmy Fallon, shout out to Jimmy Fallon, because when I think of Jimmy Fallon, I think of Norman Lear. But at any rate, what did Martin Luther King say? But I ain't mad at him. I mean, after all, you can only be who you can be, right? And that's, well, that's not true. You can always be something else if you want to be at, at any rate. Wait, wait, before before you wind down, I, I have a question. Yeah. Oh, no, please. What is our responsibility? You know, as you bring up the minstrelsy of the housewives, uh, again, directed in the same vein, as you bring up all of these uh, very high trending iterations of commentary, um, even, you know, Charles and, and Gail King uh, talking to Anthony Blink. And I had this conversation with Roy Wood yesterday. I was like, are they equipped, mm -hmm. to, ask the, are they equipped to ask the questions that either we need? Right. Either one of them. Mm -hmm. One's a, a teleprompter reader and the other is a former basketball player who's very entertaining. I love oh, him. Yeah. I love yeah. him on talking about different things. And he's like a broken clock. He, you know, when he says <laughs> things, it's spot on but no but, question. It, but are they equipped to ask the questions that will get us the answers that we need but also like what's our responsibility because our watching of these things what is our money, responsibility right it brings yeah. the money and it tells the That's world right. this what is the algorithm we That's feed right. the algorithm whether it's on That's youtube right. or on television what's our responsibility and how do we how do we discipline ourselves to create mm. what we want to live in. How do we, because it's up to us. We determine what's successful, what's powerful, who's in office, all the, it's our voice and our clicks, our eyeballs is what we tune into. And we can't be agnostic. And you can't say, well, it doesn't matter if I'm watching the NFL, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, That's it's right. going to continue anyway. But no, if we all collectively decided until these things happen, we're not watching, just like those That's young right. brothers at that college said until that that horrible president is ousted we're not playing and they only needed to do one game and threaten one that's game right. university of missouri that's right that's so exactly right i, I just want to know what our response because we we love our things that i'm i'm guilty too you know i watch a lot of trash television we're um, all guilty yes me but, too so so because so, right now some, some people are feeling you know like attacked don't feel attacked. I just want us to sit in. No, you should feel attacked. You should feel attacked because I'm attacking myself too. That's the first thing. We have to stop being complacent, right? I mean, we have to we have to attack ourselves. 
by attack, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, why am I watching this? That's the first thing. We have to dare to change our conditions. Because if we don't, then we can't then say every time somebody is shot by the, the paterolas, by the police, by the hunters, we're going to go out in the street and protest. Why are you protesting? This started in the homes. This started in the palm of your hand and these devices. This, the cop watching the same thing you watching. That's why when they're arresting you, they put the handcuffs on. If you're lucky, they're saying, bro, oh, come on, bro. Come on, bro. You need to calm down, bro. Where did that come from? It came from the same. It came from me watching Charles and talking to Shaq. But you ain't Charles or Shaq. Or the ball player from uh, played for the Saints that they killed in Alabama. I mean, they just basically murdered him. Or the brother that got tased in the back by this white woman in the same county in Alabama. Just tased him straight up. You know, oh yeah, uh-huh. This so our first responsibility is to feel attacked by ourselves. Let's attack ourselves because we're all doing it. I wouldn't know about all these. I, I didn't watch a whole lot of episodes, but I saw being Mary Jane, yeah, insecure, all the reality TV, sure. Sure, the Tyler Perry stuff, dear white people. Now that one I couldn't swallow. I saw the movie, but I couldn't watch it. Because I know what it is. I watched two seasons of Blackish and had that, that's enough. I ain't never seen no copy, uh, no um, episodes of what's the other one, the spinoff, Collegeish or no, no Grownish, 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 where she went to school. Thank God it wasn't HBCU at least, but that's what spurred all these damn HBCU-ish. Hey man, but I watched it, and you know why? I used to give the excuse, and I still do to a certain or explanation. I watched that because my students watched it. Well, that's true. I don't enjoy it. And although there are moments of levity that are hilarious because black people are funny. Shannon Sharp funny as hell. But guess what? Then you look up and say, it's been 20 minutes. And I could have got a few more pages done over here or I could have watched something. And then you get the clean glass of water. You know, as critical as I've been of Rustin, I sat there and watched Rustin. I see Domingo Coleman did a great job in terms of his own persona. And so you see the pain of B.R. Rustin. It's very different than the vehicle that we watched together in Nubia Friday before last, yesterday in, uh, in, in Boycott. But if we're critical, and I don't mean critical to the point of being pedantic. I don't mean we hate everything. I mean, being able to understand the impact that these things have on us as a first step being uncomfortable and being willing to sit in that discomfort. This is what Martin King is writing about and where do we go from here when he's got that chapter on black people. It ain't just a white liberal. We can't just put this off on other people. That's why we have to have a governance space to talk to each other and to talk to ourselves in community with each other. Then that discomfort can yield an even greater love, a greater passion, a greater concept of family. That's why we're here at this retreat. Last night, we had a whole conversation uh, Brother Alfonso Wyatt, who wrote this book called The Mind Hustler, y'all see, Identifying Self-Destructive Thoughts and Distractions. This is a very interesting brother. He's out of New York, uh, spent his uh, career and working in a number of things, children's services, communications for youth. Um, he's an ordained elder in the AME Church. Very interesting with Dr. Wyatt talking about this idea. In fact, um, as he was telling me last night that this brother was at a funeral for a young person that had been killed at the hands of another young person of African descent. And there were hundreds of this young person's friends who were there. You know how this happens. I saw it so many times in Philadelphia, it made me sick 
and inspired at the same time. Sick because of the circumstances, but inspired to see these young people here, hungry, trying to be together, mourning the loss of one of their friends. You know, they wear their white t-shirts with the faces on. And he asked after the funeral, he asked the mother of the young person that had been slain if it would be okay for him to sit with these hundreds of young people to just ask them what they were feeling and maybe sit with them and listen to them. And she said, yes, and they, and they sat there. You know, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility as a community to sit with our discomfort and not to look away. So I saw the episodes of The Real Housewives in the first several seasons. And then, you know, when, when Andy Cohen started convening his mess fests, you know, watch what happens kind of things. I couldn't watch it anymore. Why? Because I see you, Norman Lee. Uh, I'm sorry. I see you, Andy Cohen. You're an agent of chaos. And, I, and I'm not critiquing you because I have no investment in critiquing you. Like Michael Gomez said in Exchanging Our Country Mark, when that, it marks, when that last generation of formerly enslaved Africans were passing away in the 1930s and they went to interview them and they asked them about, you know, how they, how, how they were told we got into enslavement. They started talking about people tricking each other and putting each other on, getting on the boat. And then the white interviewer may say, well, what about white people? And they say, well, you know, this is white people do. We had no expectations. You know, is that overdetermined? Sure it is, but guess what? Are you in danger of being killed by the police in any moment? If I walk out here in the streets of Baltimore, I'm in danger the moment I step out the door. I'm in danger in this room. I'm in danger all the time. So forgive me if I make the sharp distinction or don't forgive me because I couldn't give less of a damn. Our responsibility, is to restore our sense of self, and that's going to be uncomfortable at certain moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's just, no, you know. I mean, there, there's a sacrifice. We were talking about this a little bit last there's night. A sacrifice. I, I was thinking yeah. about, you know, I, I don't think, you know, the, the Andy Cohens of the world or even the Norman Lears are are thinking nefariously. They're not thinking no. they're they're projecting images of blackness that are harmful for generations. They're not thinking not like like uh, Bob Johnson didn't think, you know, with BET, uh, anything other than I'm making um, uh, money. I'm making money. I can buy horses for my children. I, I am successful no more so than, you know, <laughs> right. uh, you know even a Tyler Perry or whatever. And I think Tyler Perry thinks he's actually doing something because he is absolutely a blessing in Atlanta and to so many actors who aren't given an opportunity, but there's an other cost on the other side of this. And it's why Alvin, Alvin Poussaint was brought into the Cosby, uh, you know, to make sure that he was being responsible and a good steward of these airwaves. Cosby at least had enough wherewithal to say, I need to have a psychologist rooted in Africana ways of knowing to project the kinds of images that will reverberate for generations to come. And it did because so many young people went to college because of a different world. So many people in relationship aspired to have a, you know, Cliff and Claire Huxable type of relationship and raise children that way. It was aspirational because images are powerful, just like the housewives, all of them. But That's they make right. so much money. And and now in those spaces like drink champs and all, Unk and all of them, they make so much money. So in the space, there's so much money made because we click on it. We are again picking cotton for somebody else as well. Ooh. We are once again picking tobacco and cotton and sugar cane, and other people are benefiting. And some of them look just like us. And why would they stop? Why would they stop? There's so much wealth, and I know it because I'm purposefully not you know, leaning in while we're saying, yes, hit the like button if you're on YouTube. Let's freak the algorithms. For me, it's more like, let's get this into the zeitgeist 
uh, and let's let people right. know this is something that we want. Let's let's do the intentionality that that they're doing in our destruction that we also participate right. participate in That's our right. in our savior and our freedom. So you know, can, can I ask, let me can I ask you a question about that very specific thing? And, and what triggered it for me as you were laying that out was you said we're picking the cotton. In, in, in the interview in Ebony, one of the things that Janet Du Bois brought up, she said, you know, my mother worked as a domestic. I remember scrubbing floors. Esther Roll picked beans in the field. As we think about what we owe to the future generations, I think about I was going, we went to my uh, my father's sister's funeral in Virginia a while, been about 10, 10 years ago, and my niece and I, my brother's daughter. And so Jamoke and I, we driving down and we passed a cotton field on the way back to Maryland, to, to D.C. And I pulled over. I said, come on. She said, we're going out in this field. You ever been in a cotton field? She said, no. I said, all right, we're just going to go out here and stay in this field for a minute. I want you to bend down, pick this. I mean, it's a small thing, but I don't want to. Do we, what do we owe our young? Because again, thinking about, there's a reason why Esther Roll could go in there and say, or Janet Du Bois could go in there and say, or LaWanda Page in Sanderson could go in there and say, that didn't necessarily transfer to Bernadette Stannis, except because Bernadette Stannis was there, she picks up on it. And so then, you know, Mark, um, what's the sister's name? Uh, Marla Evans was in uh, 227, where it played Florence. Marla Gibbs, Marla Gibbs. Marla Gibbs, Marla Gibbs. She, you know, she here. praises, she said, people wouldn't have known me if not for Norman Lee. Yeah, but you are known forever as Lawrence. <laughs> I mean, in the same way, but, 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 but even that, there's, there's, there's nuance. What do we owe to these young people who clearly have the same, I was watching Rasheed Wallace, talking with uh gilbert arenas and them uh, and uh what's about kelvin martin about these bogus referees the one donahy and then his, and then the guy that's always got beef with uh chris paul because he told chris paul's son to get the hell out of that's an ass i'm looking at these brothers they have the fire but i'm wondering what do we owe them in terms of reminding them that these previous generations who had the fire dealt with it this way I mean, is there something about what what's the role of continuity what do we owe these young people to help i mean them? you're doing it jr smith um as you're talking i'm thinking you know the the light bulb is coming on among the yeah. free because these brothers are free so <laughs> yes. they 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 get to say some things um and again as long as our uh comfort and lives are tied to this commerce and mm. you know, somebody in one of the chats said, you know, and these people own their own platforms and they're still producing minstrelsy because that's how the platforms continue, right? Yes. If you can have a platform that feeds like this one and we can make that sufficient, do you know what I'm saying? We don't need billions yes. of dollars. We don't, we're not going out to get a round of funding, you know, because that, that's a, that's a, an exchange that is once that happens, they've got you. This sister, yeah. I'm afraid she's about to lose her job at Harvard because they just sacked the white woman at Penn because the boy said, I'm taking a hundred million dollars back. They are in intellectual warfare, and Claudine Gay may be out of a job. She's more qualified than anybody that ever been to president of Harvard. And again, well, not caping for her, but you're right, money. Hold ahead, on, but what's the what's the role of a president of a college? Raise that money. Right. So if somebody's pulling a hundred million dollars, she's no longer viable. And, and Except yeah. they can't stop you. Well, you I'm just gave us another part of the answer. We've got to support ourselves. You yeah. should never be in a position like that. Well, it's what we talk about often, you know, um, and, and there's a sacrifice in that, too, you know, because you have to you have to, you know, put aside all of it because they, they're going to put the shiny bubbles mm. in front of you. 
you know, oh, don't don't you want this? Don't you want this new car? I've been driving the same cars paid for. I'm good. You know? <laughs> as long as you, as long as you, you know, I wear the same thing. Everything that I got my own clothes, I'm just gonna put them on. You know, they might. I feel like you know we we won't sit in that long enough to get over because once you get over, once you have complete ownership. Because I'm saying, how did they get there? How did they get there? Yes, free labor. Okay, not everybody owned people. So the rest of the folk built systems. Right. Right. So so it's like um, I'm reading Gladwell. I was like, oh, well, they won't let the Jewish people become lawyers. So they're going to find a, a space to be, you know, to dominate in the law, in the law realm. Right. Right. Where you're going to need them. Like if our thing and, is. And the day is not based on a demographic. No, they is based on a culture, which is one lesson we have to say. We talk about black is not demographic. We got a cultural thing. So when a child like I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't even brought up Jewish people because we see it in Chinatown. We see it with with the halal. No, but 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 the common element is a cultural is a momentum of memory. It's not a critique. I mean, Marcus Garvey said that when when literally uh, during the Balfour Agreement, 1917, and then forward, he said, as Palestine to the Jew. Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. Now that is problematic in terms of settler colonialism, but what even Garvey is recognizing is there's an animating force behind this idea that there's a we. So what does it mean to belong to someone who says we have a memory? Now you can critique it, you can art, but what you can't, as you to the point you're raising, what you can't dismiss easily is the fact that that notion of we animates behavior. Right? We don't. We gotta have a we. And, and that we can help humanity ultimately, but but I mean, you know, when when a, I say a child, but when a teenager like Bernadette Stannis, who was in her second year at Juilliard studying music, when they made the call for good times, if that's all you have, you're gonna take it. Imagine what Bernadette Stannis could have done if there had been black platform and black structures where she could have continued to practice her craft as a musician, as she added acting and said, I mean, now I looked at you know this family jewel. And now they dropped on a family business where she's in there playing somebody mom. The whole thing is what's this guy, Carl Weber, with this knob. And I'm saying that, because that's where it is. Where, where's the other thing? You're not gonna see her on Broadway. You're not gonna see her in the black theater, regional theater. But you're making a very important point. Without institutions, what are our people gonna do who have these talents, these frustrations, these dreams? But that's of course you helping and to remedy that. And we can't throw up our hands and like abdicate it, you know, because I look at even the Sikhs in the trucking industry. Those of you who are in the trucking mm. industry, y'all been in the trucking industry how many years, you know, but to come in with a purpose and a plan, it was like, all right. And it's no, right. you can't be mad about it either. No, build the system no. and it's okay. But, it. And, and, and also take back your talent, you know, because if you all did it, like in boycott, if we all did it, boycott come proved on. that. It's come on. Come on. In yeah, fact, I, but but it did. I mean, so, Joni Asbury said this when we were talking about the Michael Bruce Burkett last week uh, in WPFW. She said, you know, this is something that we could easily study the 381 days of the boycott. We should probably devote 381 days of studying what they did to learn the lessons for what we can do today. It's not just a date that we commemorate. What? How did they build this network? The carpools? How did they get the insurance? What were the black banks they put the money in? We said you're romanticizing. No, no, because you should. If we are romanticizing, it's after studying. But people critique. Say, well, why are we studying the past so we can get that momentum of memory? And that's a, yeah, that's a very valuable lesson. 
One that, by the way, we're going to continue Monday night uh, with office hours. We're doing uh, the second of Du Bois's speeches at HBCUs. This is a 1908 speech, uh, Galileo Galilei. This is his first speech at Fisk. He came back for his 20th anniversary of his graduation. And it's almost like, like I said, there's something ancestral going on because with this crucifix, attempted crucifixion of these Ivy League presidents are moving them out of their jobs. I don't want to overburden the metaphor. Du Bois is asking, what is the purpose of education? He's telling these Fisk students, you skill development is necessary to make a living. But if you don't know why you've developed the skills, which is why we have to expand our minds, then skill development is not going to help us. And he said, philanthropy is coming in now to try to shape what's going on. He said, I came back to Fisk to get his talk because they gave a bunch of money and these people want to make a vocational education program at Fisk, and I had to step in. They said, you want to come speak? He said, yeah, I'm coming to speak, because this got to shut down. And he uses Galileo, because he said, when Galileo, who knew that the earth moved around the sun, when they brought him before the Inquisition, it was like, does the sun move around the earth? He lied and said, yes. And he said, from that moment, that you're going to be faced in moments when you have to make a choice. Claudine Gay made a choice. And guess what? That is going to result in some things that are going to be very unpleasant for her. Already unpleasant. You got people who can't spell talking about she's a diversity hire. See, that's what happens when you don't have people that will fight back because we don't have institutions. When Du Bois says Galileo lied, what he's telling those young people, and he goes on to do that. We'll talk about this Monday night. He says, in those moments of confrontation, that's when your character is shaped. And everything that happens after that. That trajectory is moved. Now, whatever happens to President Gay, whatever happens to President of MIT or Penn, or whatever happens to any of us, at the end of the day, we all, the same night awaits us all. You can live, you can't live forever. You can live to 101 or 100, but guess what? Or two, but at the end of the day, we're all going. The question is, what did you do in the moments that you were here? And, and, and you're helping us with that, Prof. I mean, again, I, I, what we're doing, what we're all doing here collectively, we are we are standing in a truth and we're we're making this journey step by step. I'm I'm grateful and hopeful and optimistic and because I, I, I we have done it, you know. Uh everyone's like, oh well we can't. I'm like, well we have, you know. <laughs> right. Why can't we do it again? We have this whole nation that we are in right now was built. You know, if we built that, why can't we build the next thing? It's not just rosewood and greenwood and all of the, and, but they're going to no, come no. in here. All right. So do we stop building? Do we stop coming together? Do we stop no. challenging one another? Do we stop holding each other accountable? Do we stop holding ourselves accountable? Do we stop no, because no. people are evil? They're going to stay being evil. Right. Right. And yeah, no, we're not going, we're not going to do, we not, we can't stop. And we can't, we, yeah, we can't, we can't stop. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I'm thinking. Uh, we're going down here to these folks. Oh, I should mention, don't don't worry, I should just raise the name of our, one of our dear sisters who made transition very unexpectedly. She was teaching her course, uh, the way I understand it, and, and suffered an aneurysm and then, uh, you know, made transition last week, uh, Dr. Gay Byron. Gay Byron, just a, a brilliant sister, a theologian. Uh, she came to work at Howard University uh, at the time that uh, the former Dean Alton Pollard at the School of Divinity had brought her in. She, her, her, one of her specialties was uh, Ethiopian Christianity, early Christian church. Uh, we had her talk to the freshmen in, in our freshman seminar, the now defunct freshman seminar, about the relationship of Africa to Christianity. Brilliant sister, uh, 
She has uh, two sons uh, who, you know, we ascended our prayers and surrounded them. But Gay Byron was one of those sisters who spoke truth to power, and she did it right up until her last breath. So uh, we had no choice, Prof. We have no choice but to continue. I mean, we're here, so why not? Yes, uh, it, I, I'm going to be forever grateful to Adra Asamoah for bringing you up uh, yes. that day, that that Veterans Day. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it has literally changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and mine too. Set us on a course, but that's the, uh, the other thing. None of this happens without collaboration. There's no singular force. You know, Come there's on. no singular person. There's no, like we, we worship, uh, even, even Jesus had 12 disciples. Let me just say that. Um, you know, <laughs> and then you count Mary Magdalene. No question. His count, girlfriend. Count all oh, the Mary. Oh, sorry. No. Okay. <laughs> right. All, all the Mary. You know, but all again, the Marys. Yeah, we, we, we've been conditioned to, to, to worship, uh, you know, individuals, uh, but systems, yes. you keep saying, they can't yes. beat the systems. And that's community and that's collective. So that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. I, thank you. That's right. Oh, thank you. Love you. Go do your thing. I love you too. Love yeah, you. yeah. Let me run now. I gotta look here and see. Oh yeah, yeah. I gotta get downstairs. Yes, for that libation. All right. Yes, man. Love you. All right, all right, y'all. See y'all in the Nubian streets as well. Have a wonderful weekend.